0: Welcome to Wild and Exposed. Your number one adventure, nature, and outdoor photography podcast. Wild and Exposed is hosted by Mike Amaro, Ron Hayes, and Jason Lopez. Thanks for tuning in. I'd
1: like to welcome you all back for another edition of Wild and Exposed. This is something new. We've got Ray Hennessy and Ray G., on with us from the wildlife photo chat. And we're gonna do a little cross promotion of each other's podcasts and, and just take some time to get to know these guys as photographers and their work. And also talk a little bit about what brought them to the point where they decided to start the podcast. So welcome Ray G and Ray Hannessy to Thanks, Wild guys. and Exposed. Thank
2: you, I'm, I'm feeling wild and exposed right now, so thank you. <laughs> I'm not used to being interviewed. We're usually doing the interviewing. So this is a, it's a nice challenge.
0: And that's Ray G. So Ray Hennessy, give us a little uh, intro about yourself. Hey,
3: how's it going guys? Thank you so much for having us on. And really, this was a great idea. As soon as I saw the
0: email, I'm like, yes, this is going to be fun. So really appreciate it. Why don't you guys start out with just telling us how you came up with the idea to do the podcast and what your podcast is all about?
3: Yeah, sure thing. The idea came from I was in the past, uh, maybe like two years ago, I was doing a live YouTube series with uh, another friend of mine, and that was going really well, but. Uh, I had some things in my life that I just had to kind of step away from one, come back. He had taken it in a different direction, which was totally fine, but it was, it didn't make sense for me to come back. So I wanted to do something else. And honestly, I didn't want to step on his toes with what he already had going and kind of repeat the same thing. And I also realized that while YouTube, I think is great, audio only podcasts have an advantage of being able to be listened to a lot more places, right? So, you know, wildlife photographers that are out there driving to their location and back, they can listen to it. I mean, they could watch YouTube, but they really shouldn't, you know.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. um, we'll discourage so that yeah. as well. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> uh,
3: so yeah, uh, Ray and I have known each other for a while, and Ray is much newer in the wildlife photography game than I am. And so he you, kind you of say,
2: you could say it. I'm an amateur. <laughs>
3: yeah. Okay. Well, he he came he had a different perspective, you know, so we thought the two of us kind of coming at this with different perspectives would be really good. And our idea in the first place was just to interview a lot of the photographers that we admire, especially, you know, just people we've been following on Instagram. And uh, surprisingly, the most most of the people we reach out to actually say yes, which is (laughs) I wasn't expecting that. So that's been nice.
0: That's the cool thing about the podcast platform. I think it's it's one of those platforms where you can you can actually get some superstars that'll be like, Oh yeah, I'll <laughs> yeah. do that. You know? I'm so, like, really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're like, what? <laughs> yeah. hey,
2: and if I can add to what uh, Ray was saying at first, when Ray asked me, I, 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 was wondering how many people said no to him, that he finally came to me and said, Hey, I, <laughs> I need some help here. But, um, as we, as we progressed and how many casts have we done, right? About 20, 24, 25, 24 it It quickly became apparent that um, Ray's vision to have me there, again, as an amateur, as a little bit more than a weekend warrior, but for me to have a different vantage point for folks. So here you have the pro and then you have me. To be able to interview folks, and the feedback we have received from folks is that they like that because you're getting different perspectives when we're talking to guests. You know, clearly when a, an amateur is asking someone, you know, someone that we may look up to their work on on one of the social media or on a website, it's going to be different than you know somebody that's uh, quote unquote the pro or that's been in the mix for some time. So I I, uh, <laughs> I really respect Ray's vision although again i I would one day like to know how many people said no before he asked me
0: <laughs> well, I think it's brilliant because the problem with what we do i with with Ron Jason and myself is we're all we've been shooting for a long time, and so a lot of times we'll just assume that people get whatever <laughs> yeah. let's just say exposure or composition or whatever, and then i'll hear from buddies that are serious amateurs, and they'll say. I don't, you guys just talked right over my head and we don't yeah. realize it. And I, I, we're not doing it on purpose, but I I love the idea that you have that perspective in your podcast because it's really important. And I think the audience is probably made up more of a lot of that hobby kind of amateur yeah. than, than anything else. So no I doubt. think Absolutely. it's great. Thank you.
1: Yeah. And our, our formula is similar. I mean, Michael is full-time, uh, Mark Raycroft, who we started the podcast with, he was full-time, writer and photographer out of Canada and then I was the has a day job kind of guy. You've right. been got shooting it. for a yeah. long time so you <laughs> you have different perspectives. It's a good formula for you guys. What um, I'll talk to Ray Hennessy first. Where did you start with your photography journey?
3: Man, um, right out of high school, I had no idea what I wanted to do and I got really good at Photoshop. My senior year in high school, I had a teacher who I shouldn't tell everybody, but he gave me a copy of Photoshop on the side, um, (laughs) and uh, (laughs) uh, he gave me a a Photoshop Bible, right? It's this 800-page book. I somehow, at that time in my life, was able to read it cover to cover and retain 90% of it, right? So I was really into Photoshop. So anyway, uh, graduate, get my first photography job. I work for um, a wedding and portrait studio who was just transitioning into digital, so just to... Put this in perspective, right? It's 1999. Their first digital SLR is a Kodak 520. It's a twelve thousand dollar, two megapixel camera.
0: <laughs> I had that one. Um,
3: did you? Yeah. Nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huge. Oh, dude, just massive. Yeah. The battery in it was insane. Yeah. 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 So, just kind of long story short, I, you know, transitioned them into a full digital department. Eight years later, when I left there, they had like. 20 max uh, computers, you know, all kinds of digital cameras and everything. And, uh, I really kind of learned digital photography working there. And in 2006, I actually started finally pointing my camera at wildlife. Thanks in part to my father who I grew up hunting and fishing with him. And so we're always outdoors, but then that kind of all fell to the wayside and he started just shooting backyard birds. And then he started going to the the local wildlife refuge and uh, I started seeing some of the stuff he was getting. And I was like, Whoa, this would be, this is really looks fun, you know? And I started joining him. And then, uh, from there, it it kind of just grew. I would say I kind of had no clue what I was doing from 2006 to probably about 2012. So like five or six years were just me fumbling through everything. You know, there wasn't, the plethora of YouTube tutorials and Instagram photos everywhere and everybody showing you how to do this stuff. Right. So it was just complete and utter trial and error trying to figure it out. And I would say it was, took me that long before I kind of was like, all right, I think I know what I'm actually doing now. And then I've just been kind of refining from there.
1: Excellent. I want to get back to the refining part, but yeah. first uh, Ray G, how about you? How'd you get your start? So my story's uh, slightly different. Uh, <laughs> had a midlife
2: crisis. I was uh, looking for something outside of uh, what I was probably engaged at the time, all the different hobbies I've had in my life. So I picked up a camera and the whole idea was to shoot my kids, you know, playing sports, right? So my my daughter was uh, playing soccer and I I remember getting the uh, the D500 because it could handle the action a little bit better. While this was going on, and this was in fall soccer, I started hearing about uh, eagles in the Northern New Jersey. And, you know, I had, I had never known that we even had new eagles in New Jersey. <laughs> I, I only seen, you know, pictures of them from out West where you guys live. So I said, Hey, I got to go check this out. So, uh, now look, I had the camera I go and I head over to one of these, uh, local parks that believe it or not sits, right off of uh, the New Jersey Turnpike, which is a very busy place. And I couldn't believe it. There was eagles flying all over the place. It was, I think it was late November, early December. And uh, here I am. I, I forgot. I, I actually, I think I might have had like a Tamron 150 by 600 lens at the time that I had actually gotten for the soccer So I had that lens with me and I was so excited to see eagles fly in New Jersey. So here I am taking pictures, you know, birds in the air. And there was a, a gentleman that I had run into, a guy by the name of Steve, who was doing the same thing I was pretty much doing. He had just gotten into this hobby. I think he was a guitarist. He'd gotten into it. So we struck up a friendship and... Uh, before long, he had invited me on a warbler trip with him because a good friend of his was like a digiscope guy, and knew everything about warblers. Next thing you know, it's spring. I'm into warblers now. For the life of me, I would have never thought in a million years that this midlife crisis was going to take me anywhere near birds. Okay, so here I am. The warblers were just, you know, phenomenal to understand. I, again could not believe that that stuff was actually in New Jersey. From there, of course, you know, spring leads into summer. I was very fortunate enough to to be at the uh, the Jersey Shore, and this is the fun part of the story. I'm at the Jersey Shore. We have shorebirds all over the place, and of course, you know, if you like eagles, you're going to like ospreys, right? Now, do you guys notice Ray's laughing right now cuz he knows where this story's going. <laughs> So there's osprey nests all over the place in South Jersey. Just a phenomenal comeback. So here I am. I got my Tamron 150 by by 600. I'm going to go get a shot of an osprey. And uh, there's a a nest that I knew of that I can see off of the road. And I I work my way back through this sort of marshy area. It was I don't know if it was high tide or low tide, and getting myself a little wet. I'm not prepared, right? Like I would be today. So here I am. I'm uh, probably within about 50 yards, or or more, 75 yards from the nest, and the osprey. There he's bringing in fish for its uh, mate and I'm not even sure if there were any nah, I think I don't think there was any babies I keep hearing people talking I'm like where is that coming from and I'm thinking that the wind is carrying the voices over to me from from miles away like the wind could sometimes do and finally I turn I look over and I see these two moving what I would consider like shrubs in the middle of a little uh, alcove <laughs> in the water. And all of a sudden I says, Oh my gosh, there's poachers out there. There's guys out in the water. They must be looking to shoot and kill something. Right? So here I am thinking, wow, I, I'm in this critical position to, you know, call the law to come stop these guys from poaching. And I remember, uh, taking my lens, focusing in on on these, uh, what I thought were shrubs. They were actually camouflaged floats, and I see lenses coming out. So I says, wow, that is cool. It's photographers in the water. Wow. In the water, taking pictures. And I said to myself, hey, I wanna do that someday. Now look, I gotta prolong the story because you'll appreciate it. <laughs> so about about a week later, no lie, um, you know at the time, well, I, they still do it today, where where Facebook, uh, if they know that you like this, they'll recommend this, like another like hub or site. So th- Facebook did that for me and recommended some wildlife site. And I click on it and all of a sudden I catch this picture and I believe it was uh, it was a heron, right? It was. Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, it was a black black crown heron, heron. close. Oh, it was a green heron. I'm looking yeah. at this. I said, man, that's a beautiful picture. So if you know Ray Hennessy, he loves to write these. Uh, some people would consider long winded. I don't. I really appreciate them. These narratives of what he was doing. And I'm reading this narrative. Didn't know Ray Hennessy at the time. I'm reading this narrative and. As I get to the bottom of it, it basically explains the location where he took the picture. And I look at the date and I says, I was there when he was there. That must have been one of the guys in the blind. I got to meet that guy because someday I want to do that. That is cool. That is really cool. So I. I think I instant message him through Facebook and I said, hey, we met the other day. I'd love to have a conversation with you. And of course, he's like, I didn't meet this guy. And he writes me back like, you know, it gives me some real terse answer. And I, I said, I think we need to talk. I think you'll find it comical. He still wasn't biting on it till I sent him a picture that I had taken of that moving shrub I was talking about. So he immediately calls me back and, uh, we've been friends since, and I will tell you that, uh, not only has he been a mentor to me, but within a year I was in the water doing the same thing. So that was sort of my journey that, uh, has helped me with my midlife crisis <laughs> at the same time. It's also cost me a lot of money in terms of uh, damaging equipment, but we'll talk about <laughs> that later. <laughs> Sorry for the long-winded answer, but I
1: no, I that's perfect. It, it does allow for, for us to confirm, you know, first of all, the men- mentorship aspect is what we talk about a lot. Yeah, is that's that's one thing that um, every photographer should have a, a mentor, and also, you know, just getting out there and putting yourself out there, develop those networks. You know, everybody starts somewhere, and that's kind of not kind of, it's really comical. <laughs> to be completely honest, I love that.
2: Yeah, so I thought he was a poacher, so yeah, I was. <laughs>
1: I've
3: since been in that same spot in the floating hide and had an entire tour boat go by that were like just just a bunch of, you know, random like weekend people out down the shore getting driven around to see like the local birds and wildlife and stuff. And then they're over the loudspeaker. They're like. Hey, that looks pretty cool. (laughs) I'm just like giving them a thumbs up (laughs) from out of the water. (laughs) So I've surprised a few people in that thing. Jersey gets a bad
0: rap. I mean, I think when, especially people out West here, we think of Jersey, we just think of New York City, right? You just think of just heavy population. But Jersey's got a lot of rural country and a lot of wildlife, I think, opportunities, right? Can you guys Uh, talk a little bit about that? Because I think it's just... It's a misconception. Yeah, I would very much agree with
3: what you said, Mike. Um, When you say wildlife, I think of like some of the big mammals and stuff like that that you guys have. And and we really don't have that variety. But as far as, you know, every other kind of wildlife uh, and especially birds, uh, the variety that we get as far especially with the seasons and everything is really tremendous. It really is. You know, there's, there's Cape May down at the South here, which is world famous for birding. And, um, you know, then you go all the way up to the North and we have some, I guess we can kind of call them mountains. They're large Hills. Uh, compared to what you guys have out there Uh, but we have some mountainous regions and again different habitat that bring in a wide variety of different birds and you know the one nice thing that I love about photographing what I mainly photograph which is birds in New Jersey is the seasonal change you know it's like every three months like we got a new set of something coming in you know and I don't feel like I'm ever really getting too bored when I'm when I'm finally getting tired of a certain thing like oh I gotta photograph this again Uh, it's almost that time and they're they moved on out and the next you know, group of birds is coming in. And I really do love it. And, and I'll pass this off to Ray, but even up north where it is a lot more urban, uh, there's still some amazing stuff. And I'm sure he'll probably mention. you know, it kind of helps him find some of the birds that he loves to find.
2: Uh, Absolutely. So let me tackle that in a couple of ways here. Uh, One, uh, and this was explained to me by a birder and Ray, I think you'd, I don't know if you would agree with this, but where New Jersey sits, and, and obviously Cape May is uh, world renowned, but New Jersey in itself sits in a, in a place that it's uh, almost like the southernmost piece of a lot of the northern migration. And then the northernmost piece for a lot of the southern migration. Maybe not exactly, but we sit in those crossroads that are incredible, whether it's shorebirds, whether it's warblers, whether it's uh, a lot of the uh, the migrating uh, hawks is incredible. So uh, to Ray's point is you don't really have to wait long for there to be a change. Now, again, we don't get those huge mammals. You know, that's why we're all stepping on each other to find foxes. Um, and th- there are some bear, but uh, I have not uh, endeavored on on that end. But in terms of the the bird species, is just really, really incredible across the board, and, and it is it's extremely diverse in what you get. And then you know what Ray was saying about me being up north. Now there's a the one the northwest part of the state is just absolutely, you know, gorgeous. In fact, that that picture that you have uh, behind you there, Ron. You know, even though Ray doesn't call them mountains, you sort of have a lot of that kind of mountainous region. But where I'm at is interesting. I live in the suburbs right outside New York City. And what it does is it creates a lot of these pockets for birds. So it's a lot easier to find them. So, for instance, the warbler migration in the spring, what usually happens is they're flying at night as the sun is coming up. They see this uh, one uh, mountainside and it's Garrett Mountain As the sun's coming up, they will land there. And then what they quickly realize, it's surrounded by an urban environment. So they stay there. And it it really allows not just birders, but also photographers to get an opportunity to photograph because they really get funneled into areas. Same things happen with the owls. Uh, Same thing happened with a lot of the raptors because there's a lot of the urban areas that they are forced into these little pockets And it makes it uh, sort of easier. I remember visiting someone out in Pennsylvania and uh, I would say, you must have a million owls out here. And she says, yeah, we do. But they're so spread out. It's hard to find them where I know in North Jersey, it's a lot easier because they're sort of sequestered in these little areas. And then I'll just add the last part. um, And I never knew this. Uh, Ray and I have a mutual friend Who's been all over now? The North America, Central America. Is he in South America now? I don't even know. Yeah, something like that. Who knows? Yep. Yeah. And and he talks about how South Jersey, where you know where Ray and I met, and you know Ray was there today, is just got phenomenal sort of backstops for shorebirds. Just the way things are spread out, it's just gorgeous. So we're very fortunate that we have those marshes, and uh, that the shorebirds are there, and it's really picturesque
1: yeah a couple of the kind of species that are bird species that are kind of toward the top of my list. Uh, some of the best images that I've seen have been from New Jersey, and that would be number one snowy owl and you you talked about yeah. <laughs> you talked about the south end of the northern migration, you know yes, yes and, and also peregrine falcon uh, wow. because of where it can be photographed and it's so accessible yeah. and You know most people don't know and we won't give exact locations but (laughs) they know around here (laughs) right the only thing that's kept me from doing that is because i was always afraid to get mugged (laughs) (laughs) well hey so
2: let me just let me just uh you know tease that out a little bit the snowy owl stuff is really cool particularly i know two years ago there was an eruption and uh just about every beach uh, on the jersey shore because again in a the winter time there's nobody on the beach except the animals right so the snowies were just all over and ray ray would attest to that so if you catch an eruption year it's phenomenal even in the, on those non eruption years they're here just not in numbers but the peregrine falcon what makes that so interesting is believe it or not new york city i think has the highest concentration of peregrine falcons in the United States, uh, yeah. mainly because there's a lot of pigeons. And why is there a lot of pigeons? Because there's a lot of, you know, people either feeding them or leaving food out. So the peregrine population in New York City is incredible, which for us in New Jersey, this uh, the whole uh, Hudson River on the Jersey side, particularly up north, as you're just about to get into New York State, is these uh, very uh, large, you know, cliff sides. So there are Uh, at any given time, about three to four pairs of peregrine falcons. And the one that you're probably thinking of, and -hmm. and it's no secret that location, uh, we actually laugh sometimes when people take tour groups there, they can just go online and find it themselves. (laughs) It's just situated to the point where first, if you're from this area, and you first get a camera and you want to learn about wildlife, it's incredible because All you do is you drive to this location, you get out of your car, you walk about 40 yards and you're overlooking a cliff. And from there, about 20 yards away is a perch, which is, as you guys have seen this picture (laughs) millions and millions of times. But it's just fascinating to see. And then of course, what comes with that is the mating, which is occurring now, and then certainly when they have babies down the road. So when you're ready to come over here, you could stay at my place and I'll take you up there.
1: Well, it's, uh, we might, just, it's we phenomenal. might be able to work a trade on that one, Ray. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's
2: it's 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 a phenomenal place. And again, even though, and Ray will tell you, it's played out. Just to see them is so remarkable. It's incredible.
1: You know, we have them in Wyoming, and they're another huge uh, conservation success story, of course. Yep. But the way that they hunt, and the reason that they find so many of them in the city, is they put hack boxes up on top of these yes. uh, big buildings, yes. because there is such a huge prey base. And so they hunt by basically dive bombing. Yeah. They hunt off the off the cliffs in a lot of places. So the first time I saw one, I actually didn't see the falcon until after it had made the kill, oh, and wow. I saw this pigeon just basically turn into a poof of feathers.
0: Hey, and then Ron. all
1: of a sudden, I saw the bird shooting through it. Given the location where you'll find them in Wyoming, it's tough to get to them to photograph them, and so to find you know those spots and and there actually is a couple in california as well but the spots where they're a little bit more accessible and of course snowy owl is great in any location but some of the shots i've seen on the shore you know the light that you can get a man is just unreal
0: well i think we talk about it all the time too where you have an urban environment these animals birds mammals anything they tend to be more acclimated to people you know and it's if you do find a peregrine in colorado on a cliff somewhere you're going to disturb that animal, and it's probably not worth taking the picture. Animals that are accustomed to it are fine, and you're not going to disrupt it, but you go out into the wilds of some canyon country somewhere, you could disrupt that whole nest, and and that's just not a good thing to do anyway.
2: Yeah, Yeah, that's true. Hey, Rod, I'll just end with this piece. Uh, So what you've just described, you could be at this location in New Jersey, and while the peregrine is sitting on its perch— It'll actually – you can't see it, but it'll actually see out in the distance. It'll see uh, a flock of birds. It'll leave. It'll create this incredible arc, and you'll actually be able to see it hunt over the water and then bring that prey back to the perch, okay? That's just incredible. There's not too many places that you can see that. Yeah, see, that would probably do it for me.
3: (laughs) (laughs) No doubt, no doubt.
0: So, Ray Hennessy, what – so you got into, you, you were hunting and fishing, and you were into wildlife yep. that way, and then you got into the yep. photography kind of thing. What keeps you into it? You know, wildlife is tough because everybody does it. It's one of those things where you don't have to hire a model. You don't have to set up a whole shoot. You can just go out there and you generally find something to shoot. But it's horribly competitive. You know, if you're trying to make money at it, if you're trying to make a living at it, it's difficult to do. What keeps you going? Trying to find and create something
3: different. That, that's really what it's been all about for me, man. I get to attribute a lot of the way I shoot as far as compositionally and lighting wise to all of my portrait work, actually. So, you know, I, I left out the part of the story where uh, my ex-wife and I actually ran our own wedding photography business for 10 years. And that was my full-time job leading up right until uh, I went full-time wildlife. Uh, Last year, so I learned a ton about photography in general composition lighting uh, Just from you know uh, other peers. Uh, I learned a lot from her She actually took some courses with some really high-end wedding photographers and that's where she learned all about the that backlight that rim lighting technique that I absolutely love to use in my wildlife photography now and We got to perfect it You know, she taught me that technique and then we got to perfect it with our portrait clients our wedding clients because We can actually control them. Right. So I got to actually kind of figure out all that lighting. And then I realized, like, wow, this is this is amazing the way it looks and the way it kind of creates just a totally different look to the normal light that I'm used to shooting. And then I, I realized at one point I can actually start applying this to my hobby at the time, wildlife and so i really started doing that and the wedding photographers i was following when i really got into it were really into you know placing a couple really tiny in the frame with this big scene and showing off you know either the building that the wedding was at or the the scenic country club or whatever so that's where i kind of learned like hey it's not always about filling the frame with the subject sometimes there's more going on there and again i transferred that into it doesn't have to be filling the frame with my bird. I can actually show off a little bit more of a story uh, by backing off and having that bird tiny in the frame, which turns out is more of a challenge. Who would have thought, right? (laughs) I would have thought (laughs) like getting in the beginning, right? It was all like, get close, get close, get close. And then once I figured that out, it's kind of like, okay, now this is great, right? Filling the frame with a bird, the background could be the most disaster of a background and it's gonna be so out of focus, you can't tell, right? But as soon as you back off and start including all of that habitat in there, well, now you have a problem on your hands when that habitat doesn't look good, you know? So it actually became more challenging when I backed off and started including more. And, and I really love that challenge, you know, but yeah, for me, the, what really keeps me going is, you know, uh, we talked previously, man, at this point, I forget if it was on our show or your show, <laughs> we talked previously about following the trends you know, of what's out there. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the things I got to say that I really like doing is, paying attention to those trends, but not blindly following them because that's what's happening. You know, I really enjoy saying you know what, this is the direction I like to go because this is aesthetically what works for me and what I enjoy, and I'm just going to keep pushing that way, you know? Uh, I share these photos on Instagram all the time where the bird is probably makes up like five pixels in the photo because it's so tiny. (laughs) It looks amazing on my 27-inch iMac, right? But translate that down into the postage stamp size on Instagram, and that photo really doesn't do it justice, but I'm sticking to my guns like that's how I shot it. That's how I envisioned it, and that's what I'm going to share. You know, um, so I think kind of coming up with my own style and sticking to that, and co- trying to to grow and progress. That has also been a, a big driving factor.
1: I said in a in a podcast a long time ago. I can't remember which number it was, but we were talking about you know if people are having trouble understanding light or reading light, to go work with a portrait photographer. Yeah, and your your background, and you're in good company in this. Sounds almost identical to Charles Glatzer, who's a yeah. Canon Explorer light, you know, Chaz understands light and that's what sets his images apart. And that's what allows him to do so much on the education end for people is that he understands it to the point where it just falls off his brain, like the leaves fall <laughs> off the trees in the fall, you know? So I, you are in great company. And if, if you guys haven't seen, go look at just some of the image, don't even worry about the subject. Go look at some of the images of light that Ray has on his uh, Instagram page, and you'll kind of understand what we're talking about. Thank and you, Ray G. I don't. You couldn't ask for a better mentor in that way for sure. Well, you're right.
0: On, along those lines of thinking, though, where you're talking about trends, and it was just actually our last episode we did, we were talking about that, and we were talking about lens choice, right? Yeah. And lens choice for a lot of wildlife people is. Big lens. I want a 500. (laughs) I want a 600, especially if you're shooting warblers. I mean, it's like, okay, I want a 600 because that is, or an 800, you know, you just got to get in there. But at what point do we have enough pictures that are just tight shots of cool looking birds? So then you progress into, okay, well, how can I show big bird, big habitat? Then you got to get close. You Mm. know, you got to shoot wide and you got to be close that's a whole different ball game, And that's a whole <laughs> new education, right? Are you guys exploring mm. that at all? Do you take a one of the ways that I think it can be done is remote cameras, and then you start getting into BBC planet Earth territory, because now you're <laughs> like, okay, well, I got to be a digital tech just to figure <laughs> yes. out the technology required to figure this out. And are you guys playing with that at all?
3: I have just started playing with that. That is actually kind of like the top of my goal list this year is wide-angle warbler photography. Um, I was just out the other day, and... I didn't even take my telephoto out with me. You know, I had a client in the morning. Uh, we had a great outing. Got her some good shots with the telephoto, and then she she packed it up and went home. And I went in and grabbed the tripod and the uh, 24 to 105 with a, a remote trigger that I can trigger. You know, when I want. And I went over and set it up, and I watched the bird land everywhere but where it needed to land, and I didn't take a <laughs> single photo. <laughs> uh, but I gotta say, even doing that, it was like you know, like you said, right? I already have 40 photos, uh, 40, I already have 400 photos of this species. I was going after pine warblers, uh, 500 millimeter clean background on every great perch imaginable. I don't need any more of that, you know? So I, I, I was happy to miss all these great shots that I saw could have been there of of a telephoto shot in order to try and get this wide angle shot that didn't work out, but I know I'm just going to keep trying, keep trying, keep trying. And one of these days it'll land on the right spot and and I'll get the shot.
0: Right. And that just speaks to the reason I mentioned BBC. I mean, one of our good buddies shoots a lot for planet earth and, and yeah. they'll send him out on a shoot for 30 days. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, well, he's going to sit in yeah. this one spot for 30 days until whatever he's after happens. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the mindset we got to take with doing this sort of thing. And then, the technology that's out there, I mean, I think it's going to evolve. I think the the thing that we all got to be careful of is you, it's just so easy to interrupt the whole nature kind of thing. And you just don't want to be intrusive on that. But there are situations where you can get in there and set that stuff up and do some really good work. Or yeah. like what I used to do with burrowing owls is, oh, uh, yeah. you know, you would know where these burrowing owls were going to be with Prairie Dog towns. And if I had private ground, I would build a little out of two by fours, I would build a little thing that looked like a camera. I'd paint it black and then I'd set it out there on a tripod and I'd just try to get these birds used to that shape. Wow. And then when when they were actually nesting, it wasn't something new that was brought in, it was there. And it was just something to try to acclimate because I didn't want to disrupt what was going on, but I wanted to try to get that shot and be respectful of that species. So I just like to bring that up because I think you can get too heavy into this and you can get where you just are like the shot becomes more important than the animal. And we try to just yep. be that person that just says, or that group that just says, you know what, the animal's always number one. Then whatever you can do to, to get the shot and not disrupt what's going on is the best thing to do. So when you're setting up the wide and wide, when you got your wide angle and you got your wide background, yeah, I mean, obviously you're going to a lot of these spots. You kind of know, where the best places to set up for, what, what are you looking for? I mean, what, what is the, I mean, like you said earlier, the backgrounds out there have got to be kind of tough, right? Because. Oh yeah. Yeah. What's the setup?
3: Well, in this case, what I'm trying right now, I've been working with pine warblers are the first ones to show up. And so the approach has been, you know, I'm going into their forest and, uh, and a lot of times I can find them in these nice stands of pine, you know? So there's really low undergrowth and I have just a lot of tall, straight pines sticking up into the air, which, you know, wide angle, low, til- tilted up at that can be pretty kind of impressive. You know, you get that nice perspective of these tall trees behind them. Um, so I think that can be kind of, impressive if i find the right stand of trees and the right light um and then it's finding a cooperative bird right so i can find a great habitat and set but then either the bird's not there or this bird isn't just cooperative at all so i gotta keep moving so it's been just i haven't done enough of it to really to really even answer that question right now, I'm totally in the trial and error phase emphasis on the error.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's definitely something that could take a couple of years, I think just to perfect and just get that one shot. But I think you're going to end up with a shot that nobody else has.
3: That's, that's the goal. Yep. And I also want to mention, you know, uh, I really like what you just said about the burrowing owls. I was just down in Florida working with burrowing owls. I had uh, I was running some workshops down there for them, and uh, I had one last evening by myself. And I had worked with this this one burrow. They were very uh, in Florida. They're very acclimated to people. Uh, most of them, it was funny. I was in a field, right? One burrow, you couldn't set foot near it. The owls would start freaking out. You could tell right away. It's like, okay, time to back off the other one. I could have been dancing right there. These birds did not, either, they would not even look at you, you know, so acclimated to people. Those are the birds we worked with, obviously. Right. Uh, Cause you could tell we weren't disturbing them at all in the least. Um, but they had, because I spent 10 days straight with them. Right. I really figured out their pattern, right? 15 minutes after sunset, everybody wakes up, hops up on this perch, flies over to this perch. You know, like clockwork every night. So this last night, I'm like, okay, he comes up, he flies over to that perch. I'm going to set up a wide angle there. Well, you already described what exactly happened, right? He flew over towards that perch and he was like, oh, what's this here? And then he hit the ground, landed on the opposite end of the perch. But he was like, he was okay, but... You know, he was like, yeah, something ain't right here. And then right. he just went out to hunt, you know, and, and that was that. So it really kind of proved like, OK, I need to approach this a little bit more gingerly. I got to introduce something that he gets used to first before he's going to, you know, uh, before I can just chuck a camera in there. I, basically, what I'm trying to say is I think I got too aggressive in my approach and I should have kind of done it a little bit
0: slower. Yeah, and it's tough because a lot of times you can't just leave something like that out in a public place because <laughs> yeah, no, just, <laughs> you just—you really got to find the situation where you have private land, you know, yeah. Ron, the lek that Ron works with for sharptails, it's on private ground. So that gives you a lot more flexibility and, you know, setting up way before the animal's even there and getting them acclimated. And, you know, it just sure. takes a lot of time. So, so we were on their
1: podcast earlier. We got a question from Ray G about, you know, what's the best piece of gear under $100? So make sure you go check that out on the the wildlife photo chat. For you guys, what's the species that has eluded you or that you would like to photograph in the coming year?
2: Go ahead, Ray. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, I'm just an owl guy. And that's why Ray's laughing. Uh, no matter what, I, I always, it's, it's like that, uh, a moth to a flame. So for me, like even this morning I was out, you know, looking for an owl. I located it, even if I don't take a picture. So it's not like a, the species that's elusive to me as much as just the species that I can identify with so much. Um, the barred owl is a little bit more difficult in New Jersey because their habitat is uh, swampy. Uh, so it's really tough. While you might know where they're located, uh, but that's been... I don't want to say completely elusive, but it's something I would like to focus more on is uh, the barred owl. Uh, I was out this uh, past week. I did locate two, but I, I sent Ray a pretty crappy shot of one. <laughs> but uh, I know where they're at, but it's just so difficult because their habitat is uh, could be a bit unfriendly to, to humans, regardless of what you're wearing. But that, that won't stop me. So again, owls as the, you know, that sort of umbrella species, and then to be a little bit more focused is that uh, barred owl in New Jersey. Uh, There's other places if I can get to, Uh, great gray owl, but I just didn't follow all the
1: the massive people this year to go up and do that. So the barred owl, if you want to take a drive to South Carolina, (laughs) uh, we can guarantee you a barred owl. I'll put you in touch with the guy that'll hook that right up
2: hmm. Nice. Yeah. And, and look, what I would tell you, we have a couple of guaranteed spots here. But, mm-hmm. you know, this last conversation that we that we just had that Mike was just having uh, with uh, Ray is that you're always looking for something a little bit different as well. Oh, right? absolutely. And it's always nice when you find your own, but I, I will, unlike Ray, I will never turn down if anybody wants to take an <laughs> owl. In. Ray refuses to take someone else's owl, but I'll never turn that down. So thank you.
3: And, and that's so funny he mentioned that because that is my answer to this question. So um, this year I would love to find and photograph a, an Eastern screech owl. But um, as Ray just mentioned, I refuse to take a location from anybody. So you know, Ray has a handful, locations and i know a bunch of other photographers in the area who have you know uh holes that these these birds are easily found in and it's just it's on personal principle at this point i just refuse (laughs) to take it and i'll tell you it's frustrating as heck (laughs) it really is Uh, we'll see how long i last before i just break down and ask somebody uh because i've been very unsuccessful in finding one so far but um that would be that would be a nice thing to find one completely on my own that you know, maybe nobody else has ever seen. And that's what I've been doing. I've been going to you know, very remote places in Southern New Jersey, hiking around some woods that I grew up hunting in that I've never even heard a photographer in the area even mentioning going to, right? So I'm just kind of like wandering through these areas and it's, there's a lot of space down here. You know, I'm sure vast in this area compared to your area is totally two different meanings, but you know for down here it's it's a lot of wooded space and there's a lot of area to cover so it's just going to take a lot of time but uh for now i'm committed to keep trying
0: the cool thing about that though is is who knows what else you're going to find right exactly exactly yep You just might happen onto something else so yeah we don't like to get in well we do we get into <laughs> equipment a lot and i think it's i don't know i think you get I'm kind of a techie person. I love gear. I love that kind of stuff. I don't really, we all talk about it all the time. It, it's not the camera at all. It's the person that taking the picture that actually makes the picture, but it is interesting. I think for the audience, just to hear kind of just different gear choices and what you're using and what is working for you and brands. I mean, we cover everything. We don't have a favorite. I don't think we just, it's just interesting to know what other people are using. So Ray G what's your kit? And uh, what's your favorite?
2: So, again, as I had earlier said, uh, since I was on a midlife crisis, I had some discretionary money out there. Just hopefully my wife's not listening to this cast. (laughs) Um, So I'm very fortunate that I have uh, the Nikon D5, a Nikon uh, 850, as well as uh, the the new 600, as well as uh, a 300. If I had some extra money, there's that other lens that's coming out that I'd love to get from Nikon that, uh, what is that, that 70 by 300 or 70 by 400? But uh, I don't think I'll see that anytime soon. Primarily, it's the D5 for me with either the 600 or the 300. I always have a teleconverter. But what I'm really trying to learn with not only that camera, but with some of the other fun toys I'm playing with uh, between a drone and I know you mentioned before about the Osmo. I'm really trying to learn how to incorporate video uh, by using that, not only that rig I talked about, and I'm having some major problems just uh, stable and Ray laughs at me with like sort of stabilizing my video, as well as some of these other tools that are out there now that could be actually, you know, pretty fun. So while I don't have the the technical stuff nailed yet as it relates to the photography i definitely want to jump into the video side which is going to make me uh have to learn this equipment that much more
1: michael's your guy there i know I see <laughs>
0: <that>. <laughs> do you use a video tripod or a video head on your tripod
2: uh, no, I know I have to get that, but uh, <laughs> and I'll probably uh, either ask you now or offline of well, what recommendations because I
0: know that is definitely my issue. Yeah, for sure. Well, Ray Hennessy, what's your kit?
3: Yeah, I have a couple of Nikon D4s bodies, and um, uh, I shoot the Nikon F uh, five hundred F four. Uh, I have the older version that's, you know, nice and chunky and heavy, uh, <laughs> not one of these nice new lightweight ones. And I also have a 300 F4, as I mentioned earlier, playing with this wide angle stuff. I have a 24 to 105. I have their macro lens, the, the 105 macro. I have a 24 prime F1.4, which I love to actually shoot. Um. I love to shoot kind of like uh, little macro flowers and stuff with that because it's so weird to have a wide angle lens that has such shallow depth of field. To shoot a 24 millimeter F1.4 wide open is just a very unique look. Uh, So I do love that lens, which again comes from portrait world, you know? Like I have half the gear I have, I only have because of the portrait stuff I used to do. And I realized how I could kind of incorporate it into some of my wildlife. But the one thing I want to mention that uh, I think might be a little bit different than a lot of people I know is... I I support that 500F4 and the D4S on a monopod. I shoot almost exclusively on a monopod. I very rarely use a tripod ever. The two times you'll find me on a tripod or kind of tripod are when I'm sitting in a a blind somewhere, right? I'm not going to move, so why bother holding the camera? And the other time is if I'm shooting anything ground level. So I have a ground pod for that, uh, which is, you know, just kind of like a tripod. But uh, for everything else, when I am... Being, you know, I'm shooting, you know, warbler songbirds, um, pretty much anything else. I'm always on a monopod and I just absolutely love the flexibility that it gives me to be able to change my perspective, uh, you know, step right and drop a foot in an instant without taking my eye out of the camera and being able to just get that branch out of the way for that bird that landed here, you know, in an instant before it's gone. Uh, If I was on a tripod, I would miss so many shots that I can get by using my monopod. I think you can get a lot lower shutter speeds, at least for me, than I think a lot of people think you can, you know? So I'm, you know, warbler season's coming up and I shoot all my warblers on this monopod and there's so many times I'm down to 200th of a second, 250th of a second on the monopod and I get tax sharp photos, you know? Not every one of them for sure, you know? but you shoot enough, you're gonna get some sharp photos mixed in there. I don't need a thousandth of a second every every shot that I'm doing. I don't need to be locked down on this, you know, super heavy, stable tripod. I'm not trying to say that that's a wrong way to do it, but for my style of shooting and the way I like to be able to just kind of work with these birds in the field. And, you know, I, I generally don't work with them on like pre set up perches that are out in the open with a nice clean background, uh, you know, not to say I've never done that, but I, I like to shoot them in their habitat a little bit more. So I need to be flexible and need to be able to move and for me the monopod is like key for
0: that it's so key and we talk about that a lot too where you know the trend now with big game you know so moose elk deer nobody uses a tripod nobody uses a monopod everybody's handheld 100 percent, because yeah well they got those new light lenses (laughs) the new light lenses you can run the 200 to 500 nikon and it's super light and super sharp and you and i think it's exactly what you said it's your reaction time to, to compose and shoot even faster than a, a monopod. Because if sure. you're dropping a foot on a monopod, that's going to take you a second. Whereas yeah. if you're just lifting up and shooting just handheld, it's the trend. But I don't know. I don't know what to say about that other than it's hard for me to get in that frame of mind just because I'm constantly shooting video and I got to have a tripod wow. anyway. Oh, so yeah. that's um, very different. Yeah, it is very different. But I try to shoot a lot of stills too. So I'm always okay. torn because, <laughs> you know, all my buddies are out there shooting with, they're just bebopping down the trail with just a 200 to 500 underneath their arm. And I'm like packing 75 pounds of weight <laughs> and trying to figure this thing out. So yeah. that's, that's pretty cool. What about travel for you guys and, and expanding beyond the birds and the Jersey scene? Is that something that is like on the radar or are you guys pretty content? You know, there's a lot of people that are just like, you know, what? I just love doing what I do. And this is my thing. And that's what I thrive on. But then there's a whole nother group that just wants to travel and they want to see the world and and photography is the perfect opportunity or the perfect conduit to get you out to go to some place that you've never been. Or do you have any desires to do that kind of thing where you go to Yellowstone to shoot bears or you go to the coast to shoot whales or?
3: Yeah, definitely. Uh, it's certainly on my radar, you know, the, the, and the obvious, uh, obvious thing keep me from that time and money you know <laughs> uh, this is my first year full-time wildlife so the money is not there got to build that up and uh, and slowly grow that but yeah my my plan is to slowly just branch out this year you know i ran some workshops in florida i have some coming up this summer up in new hampshire with uh, common loons i'm in talks with some friends up in uh, Newfoundland, canada to go up there and scout some place to maybe do some stuff like that so slowly branching out for me is definitely on the horizon you know as it, the as soon as I have the ability to do more of it, I will do more of it. But for me, I think the way it's going to work out is just a slow kind of growth out from New Jersey, uh, and and into new uh, subjects and uh, new areas. But yeah,
0: I would love to as soon as I can. Ray G, how about you?
2: Yeah. So I uh, I have taken advantage of uh, travel over. I've been. I think I've been in this game about three years, maybe three and a half years, and I have taken advantage of travel when I have traveled. You know, for work, if I could, uh, you know, maybe it's just get up a little earlier if I'm in the right place to get out and shoot or maybe tack on a day on the front end or a day on the back end. Or if I'm with my family, they laugh at me. If like if we go to Walt Disney World, uh, maybe I'm lost for a little while because I'm in the Florida (laughs) marshes, which which supposed to happen in uh, about a month from now. But it looks like that might be canceled. In fact, I was just in Florida, I guess, about... Less than a month ago. And I find those type of trips, particularly if you could hook up with a guide, to be the most rewarding because they're gonna put you on something. So which is really neat, particularly that you know you don't know the area. So I'm not against it. What what has stopped me a little bit is family to make sure that I'm home more than, than I'm uh that I'm out gallivanting and having too much fun. So I love <laughs> traveling. But I'm sort of balancing that out, so I I hope to do a lot more of that in the coming years because I think, like that is the exciting part of the wildlife. You know, I'm looking over your shoulder and I'm looking at that picture. You know, I'm not going to get that in New Jersey. So um, <laughs> actually, I'm looking at both of you guys there. Both. Hey, of you I said, got a deer in behind mine too. All right, just, <laughs> <laughs> we all now have that, different deer. Now that I can get, but the, what they have is a little different. You know?
3: Yeah, theirs are better. I agree. <laughs>
0: Well, that's cool. I think it's it's awesome to be able to it just expand your horizons, and, like I said, it's the perfect yeah. conduit to do that. I mean, it just gives you a reason to go somewhere and check it out and I love the comment about finding a guide because if you're going to a place for the first time, it's always best to find somebody that has a clue, even when I go to Alaska, where we go shooting a lot, oftentimes we'll get a guide if we're going into a new area because if they know those bears, yeah, you know sure. they'll know the temperament, they'll know the you know what you can you can and can't get away with. And it just is a much safer situation. It's better for the animal. And then you're still going to be productive and not waste a bunch of time and a bunch of money.
2: Yep. Makes sense. Well, and one last thing, you meet some really great people out there that are in this, in this, whether it's your profession, whether it's your hobby, whether it's a sport, there's some really great people and there's some really talented people. So to have the opportunity to shoot up next to them, sit next to them and shoot uh, is really neat agreed
1: for sure and that's kind of going back to the reason that we're all here today that's one of the best parts about doing these podcasts as well and that's why i think it's it's advantageous for people to you know to listen to both because we're going to be bringing you different folks and different perspectives and i, I think you can do nothing but learn and i don't think anybody could ever learn too much can they <laughs>
0: no no My brain's not big enough to take on much more. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well,
1: I'd like to thank Ray and Ray, Ray Hennessy and Ray G for joining us this morning on wild and exposed. Again, we're trying to get a lot more content out so people can uh, listen to it while you're cooped up and hopefully we'll all be back out in the field soon. Before we go, Ray Hennessy, Uh, How can people find you on social media?
3: Uh, Actually, the best place to find me is on my website, RayHennessey.com. That's where I post a new photo every single day. Uh, I often do share those on social media, on Instagram, it's uh, Ray underscore Hennessy. But, uh, you know, the website is such a nicer place to view the photos. If you can take that extra minute to hop on over there, I really recommend it. You get to view the photos a lot larger and kind of how they were meant to be instead of, you know, kind of small on Instagram. But, uh, you know, I certainly get the convenience of Instagram. So I I do share there often as well.
2: And and for me right now, because I've sort of uh, in a process of redoing my website and, really taking a look at social media, where I want to be. So right now it's Instagram. And I am looking, I I should have a contest one day. I'm looking for a new Instagram handle. I haven't been as creative enough (laughs) to find one. So please, please bear with me uh, while while I go through that journey. So my Instagram right now, believe it or not, it's underscore G number two underscore wildlife underscore images. I hope one day that'll get better hopefully one day. I think soon. it needs more underscores.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, And then, and then also I wanted to mention too, uh, on my website is also where I share, you know, you can find the podcast there, wildlife photo chat. I share as well, some YouTube tutorials, some behind the scenes of me out shooting. I do some behind the scenes of me post-processing. I actually uh, do a lot of recording of me editing a photo in real time, which everybody tells me is way too fast, but it's fun to do that way. And, uh, just a lot of different content. It all is on my website website and that's just the best place to find all of that stuff
1: how about your workshops workshops are all listed there as well as well
3: yeah 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 everything's there so one-stop shop
1: well again thank you guys for taking the time to be with us this morning Uh, we look forward to having both these podcasts up in the different platforms and please check both of them out again the wildlife photo chat and wild and exposed podcast as always Thanks to our hardworking producer, Missy McKenzie, who is absent again today, by <laughs> the way. And uh, thanks for tuning in.
0: You've been listening to the Wild and Exposed podcast. If you haven't yet, please give us a rating and a review and make sure you're subscribed so that you'll get every episode we produce as soon as we drop it. And as always, thanks for tuning in.
1: We got our windows down Driving on a 405 Sing along to the Radio. We're going to make it someday. Nothing's going to get in our way. We will be the biggest band in town. Round around the world we'll go.